This is a very difficult episode to go through, if I'm being honest. Not because it's bad. Quite the contrary. It's actually an excellent episode. This is, this is on the VHS set, or whatever you want to call that. No, this episode is, is, is just messed up. But it's also David Livingston's first episode. Did you know that? I've spoken of David Livingston many, many times, uh, over on Voyager and over on Deep Space Nine. But historically speaking, this is the first episode he ever directed. And it shows. I don't mean that in a negative light. What I mean by is that even here, his very first episode, you can already see his unique directorial style. A uh, couple of things right off the top of my head. The shot of LaForge, who's just kind of lounging here, with a shot of the Starfield behind him, where the Romulan Boarbird silently just sort of decloaks right there, and then he slowly becomes aware of it. Or the shots of him, you know, mind-controlled, walking down to the uh, shuttle bay, are literally shot in a completely different angle, style, and, a, and a lens than the shots of Data. And, of course, the shots of Geordi are very in motion and fluid, whereas the shots of Data are very static, giving an immediate visual disparity between the one deducing and the one who is the actual uh, culprit. It's, it's great visual approach. It's one of the things I've always liked about his directorial style. He's very good at using the camera very carefully and appropriately in his, in his episodes. This is also the introduction of Sela. I suppose I should say spoiler warning, but honestly. <laughs> that actually is uh, the actress, Denise Crosby, doing the voice there, although it's her body double. I only point that out because that was done specifically to not only maintain the, uh, the illusion, that's the wrong word, uh, maintain the suspense, maintain the mystery, but also because there are certain legal requirements and protocols when it comes to giving certain actors credit when it comes to films or TV or whatever because of the, you know, the SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, and uh, union rules, they basically used a body double and had her just a, do a dub in order to be able to legally have no problems with not giving her credit in this episode to maintain the suspense for future viewers. So... I know this sounds weird, but think about this historically. Nowadays, we hear Tasha Yar there, right? That's Denise Crosby. She has a very distinct voice. Imagine watching this for the first time when this came out. This would have been 91 or so. I forget the exact date. I could look it up. I don't care. And the last time we heard Tasha Yar was back in yesterday's Enterprise, season three. It's been almost a full year since we've even encountered this character. And just all of a sudden to see a Romulan who is speaking with her voice? Now, I'm going to go ahead and be honest. Neither Mum nor I picked up on that. We just saw this Romulan in the shadows and like, who is that? That's not Tomalock, was actually what we said. Because we were thinking, oh god, this is going to be the new Romulan villain. And we were kind of right. What I also like about it, though, is, well, this is part of the ongoing threat, isn't it? As I've said before, if you watch TNG from about season 3 to about the beginning of season 5, there's a recurring Romulan arc throughout this entire thing. Having gone through most of that arc as of now, an arc that will conclude not that often from here, unification is basically the end of the arc, but really the arc kind of terminates at the end of redemption. Having gone through this, most of this arc at this point, I think I could say fairly definitively that this was not on purpose, that this was an arc that just kind of developed naturally thanks to reusing the same kind of... Basically, a story idea would come up, which would involve the Romulans, and then the writers would work it to make it work into it. In other words, I don't think this is plotted out at all. I think it was adapted to make it seem like this is all part of a cohesive arc, because the pieces do fit together surprisingly well if you sit back and think about it. The Romulans finally reveal themselves... 
but are immediately checked militarily in terms of resources, in terms of infrastructure, because there are two major powers out there, two other superpowers in the galactic community that are checking them, the Klingons and the Federation, and those powers are allies. Right? I mean, I don't even have to explain this, right? If France and Germany are allied, Spain is just going to be like, nah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not messing with that, right? Instead, what Spain is going to try to do is break up France and Germany, right? And that's exactly what we've been seeing consistently and repeatedly throughout the course of basically all the Romulan episodes to date. I want to talk about David Livingston one more second really quick, though, before we move forward, because, as I mentioned, this is his first directing job, and he does a good job of it. I have a theory why. See, this is not David Livingston's first job here. A lot of directors uh, like... Um, Gabriel Beaumont, for example, are career directors, people they brought in uh, either from the, from the rest of the studio because they were already on uh, retainer, I guess is the word I'm looking for, with Paramount, or because they had done some kind of other work and were just nearby, or they hired him for whatever reason. Because that's the usual process. You grab a director, you pull him in. The idea of cycling actors into directors actually didn't really start in the Star Trek realm until TNG in particular. I pointed that out already. But Livingston was actually a production manager, unit production manager specifically. So to put that into the most bare-bones, simplest explanation I can, that means he was responsible for basically being a team manager to handle the practical application of making some of this stuff work. Make sense? You know, a director could come on and say, I want to do this. It is the product, unit production manager's job to then say, okay, hang on. You can't do this. Because they're concerned with the practicality, the, uh, the application of camera work, effects, and all that sort of stuff. Right? So in other words, a good unit production manager and a good director make an excellent team because the two of them effectively work together to figure out what they can do and then what they actually do with the camera. David Livingston having experience with both, that's why I think he's so good of a director. Because he's already done the other half of the work. He himself mentions uh, in, a, in an interview here, which I'm going to pull out really quick. I should have already had this ready to go, sorry. Uh, he mentions how, uh, where is it? He had been, uh, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. He was working with Mary Howard, who was his new uh, production manager and producer, well, for this one, instead of him. And she challenged me in all the right places, and we had our battles just like I had with the directors, but we worked everything out amicably. But you get a different perspective on the production people. And he, he goes on for quite a while. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But what I also find funny about this is one other quote I want to share with this. I'm kind of hyper and nervous and uptight, and I always have been afraid of directing, but I finally said, David, you're going to have the opportunity. It's on this show, so go for it. Now, I find that funny because David Livingston is uh, the most prolific director in Star Trek history, having directed the most number of episodes, and a huge number of excellent episodes are under his watch. And as I said, he's one of my personal favorite directors. So I'm glad he decided to take that lunge and just say, whoo, let's do it. Now, that being said, this episode does have some holes, and the first hole is really important because the entire episode wouldn't happen without it. Why is Jordy taking a shuttle not at warp to Ryza? No, really. Please, enlighten me on this one, because this doesn't make it even a lick of sense. Oh, actually, really quick, while I'm on the subject, the geography of this episode actually legitimately makes no sense, no matter how you slice it. Because... If we're looking at a rough map, and I, I do stress the word rough, as I've said before, we've got the Klingons down here, Romulans are up here, Federation's up here. Again, very rough, okay? 
So, this planet is stated multiple times to be on the border of Klingon and Federation space. And we know that we're going to actually be dealing with the Creosians several times in the future. They'll be mentioned in a future episode, and they'll actually come up when it comes to uh, The Perfect Mate, I believe is the episode, which is just coming up in a, like five or six episodes. So, the Enterprise is definitely in this general region for this whole time. And yet, Rise is way up here, like way closer to Earth. Jordy's in a shuttle, not traveling at warp. Do I need to explain myself? And I know what you're saying. Oh, Lore, you're being nitpicky. And yeah, I guess I am. But as I've said before, little details like this, that's polish. And a lack of polish always kind of bothers me a little bit. I know that's funny me saying that, but whatever. <sighs> anyway, so obviously he could have taken the shuttle at warp because shuttles have warp capacity. He could have just gotten on the Enterprise and warped up, and it would have been faster. Whatever. But you notice how he's going to Ryza. I've actually already mentioned this on Deep Space Nine, although I'm not sure when that episode goes live relative to this one. But you ever notice how just any, almost any time someone takes a trip to Ryza, they end up getting kidnapped or affected or attacked or whatever? Like, Ryza's just, a, just the Venus flytrap of the galaxy, isn't it? So, the Romulans take him on board, and that... Well, actually, hang on. Let's rewind a second. Let's talk about the Klingons first. Because we have this great scene with the Ambassador. Where the Ambassador says, Your modesty is very human. I will try to forgive it. I love that line. Because it is very Klingon to boast. It is, in fact, extremely... It is considered normal. In fact, it's considered polite, for lack of a better way to use it, uh, among Klingon society, to boast, to brag. This is what I've accomplished. This is what makes me worth listening to. This is what establishes my social worth. External honor, right? I've talked about this many, many times. I bring that up, though, because that's usually not true amongst most human societies. Even the many human societies we have here in real life tend to feature bragging or boasting as a negative thing. It's like the old saying, I, let's pretend for a moment, this is of course not true, let's pretend for a moment I'm really good at speedrunning Mega Man 2, okay? Now if I say I am really good at speedrunning Mega Man 2, well that just comes off, across as off a little bit, right? Like a little bit wrong. And you may or may not actually believe me, because that's not right. I'm not supposed to just brag about myself. Now someone else is allowed to say, oh yeah, Laura, he's great at Mega Man 2. He's an excellent Mega Man 2 speedrunner. Someone else can say that, but I'm not allowed to because that's just the nature of human society. And thus we can see how, for us, humility is the exact same as Klingon's boastfulness. It's just an interesting parallel because the two are almost presented as one-to-one -one in terms of how they are approached culturally, and I love the way that's done. Anywho. <clears throat> so Picard, there's this nice little bit where Picard basically forces the ambassador to work with Worf. I like to think that because the Ambassador, spoiler alert, is actually working with the Romulans, that that's part of why he didn't want to work with Worf. Because, you know, Worf is a good security agent. But more to the point, you're on attack. I think Picard forces him to work with Worf, not just because Worf is the best man for the job, although he is, but because Picard knows that discommendation is fake. It's a lie being done for political reasons. And that has always bothered Picard. Picard himself even brought that up to Worf once in, I believe, Sins of the Father. Uh, it was just, look, this is wrong. <laughs> right? I, I, it might not have been. It was relatively recently. And that'll come up again in the future, too. So I like the fact that Picard's like, yeah, take your discommendation and shove it. <laughs> so, obviously I'm watching these on the Blu-ray for this particular one through. It's actually my first time watching the Blu-rays. I don't know if I mentioned that before. It's actually possible, if you, if you really zoom in a little bit, to see 
Sila's face uh, during the Romulan interrogation scenes, which I've never been able to see it before. It's just funny because they, they go to so much effort to darken her, but obviously the camera's pulling out more of her face, and you can, you can tell that's not Denise Crosby. It's just a nice little touch I wanted to mention. But what I also want to mention is it's good to see Silic is still doing jobs for Future Guy. Uh, here, obviously, he's infiltrated the Romulan Star Empire in an effort to try and destabilize them. I'm sure this has something to do with the Temporal Cold War. I'm not sure what exactly. But what I do find absolutely goddamn horrifying is the, is the entirety of the scene with him in the device. LeVar Burton does an excellent job of portraying someone who is being tortured, because that's what's happening. Imagine, and I know there's the whole, you know, eyes, eyelids taped open horror shot that several people have used over the years, but that's basically what's happening to Geordi here. In fact, it would have been interesting if Burton had actually closed his eyes, and of course it wouldn't have done anything because he can still see, because the input is coming in out completely regardless of his eyes. And imagine not being able to close your eyes to really horrible stuff. I can picture that, and I don't want to. That's messed up. Livingston himself made the quote that this is not a very violent episode, rather this is a very psychological episode. And I agree in the sense that this is very psychologically violent. This is a very messed up episode, and I am astonished they were able to tackle something this dark, just, just boom, right there on the face, in, in this particular era of Star Trek. This is before Deep Space Nine really started getting its stuff going, and this is well before Discovery would try to push the boundaries of darkness and horribleness as well. I'm not saying Discovery's horrible, but Discovery does like to ta tackle horrible topics, right? You know, it, it's unashamed in its approach to that. And what I like best about it is this shows why you don't need those things when it comes to making a horrifyingly dark story, if I can segue for just a second. Some people look at me and say, Laura, you say you like dark stories, but you don't like excessive violence, you don't like blood or gore or guts, you don't like gross, horrible stuff. And I'm like, yeah, of course I don't. But I still like a good dark story, because it is my opinion, pure opinion, that the best kind of dark stories are the ones that have none of that, like this one. There's no excessive violence here. There's no bloody, gory guts. We don't see whatever LaForge is seeing. It's probably pretty horrible. We get the implication. We don't need to see what LaForge is seeing. Burton's acting tells us everything we need to know about what he is being subjected to. That, right there, gets across so much more than if you showed me what you're showing him. My opinion. That's what I mean by that. It's the distinction. You can have a dark story that has none of the, the ugh in it. <laughs> you know? There are many examples of this. Let's talk about politics really quickly here. Because what we have here is, I, I kind of already mentioned this, the Romulans trying to remove the French and, and, the, and the Germans from each other, and, you know, from, from being united. Um, which makes a lot of sense, as I've already mentioned. But this goes back to what I've talked about before. One of these days I need to codify a term for this. It's about the, the cost of consequence. In other words, this especially comes true when it comes to either security matters or espionage matters, I've noticed. But this is true in every, everyday life. How far you're willing to go, how much you're willing to do, is only determined by how important the goal is to you. If you... How do I put this? Let's imagine for a moment that you accidentally drop a dollar into a full toilet you're probably not going to reach in and pull that out because it's just a buck, and that's gross, right? What if it was a hundred? Right? That's, that's the concept in an extremely gross metaphor. And forgive me for going the gross route, but you get my point. The idea is you're willing to do more unpleasant, more difficult, more ag aggravating things 
the more it's worth it to you. And again, the Romulans are playing for galactic-level stakes here. They're trying to break up the only real threat that they're aware of to their power base, the Klingons and the Federation. That block, that alliance block, is a huge threat to them. So of course they're willing to go to just about any extent to make that happen. Up to and including being able to aid rebels of an occupied world to destabilize it. And of course, this is a brilliant pick in its own right. They don't really say this in the episode, which I feel is a bit of a, a bit of a disappointment. But the unstated thing, which I like to interpret here, is that of course the Federation would naturally be inclined to support a, an occupied world pushing for its own independence in a similar way that they would passively apply political pressure to the Cardassians to eventually remove their occupation of Bajor. Because, strangely enough, the Federation just aren't in favor of that kind of conquest or domination. Now, to be clear, what we have here on Krios is very different than what we had over on Bajor, because the Bajor occupation was just messed up. But it's a similar concept at a different scale. So, of course, it makes perfect sense. The Federation should be in favor of them, of Krios, gaining independence, and it should be in favor of them moving away from Klingon territory, right? Everyone would believe it. Even if Picard himself was able to basically prove, even though he's not able to do this, that he was not in on this, he could never prove that Starfleet, or the Federation, was not in on this, especially with the whole LaForge agent thing, right? <laughs> It is, of course, fortunate that we then have Data and, to give him credit, Riker. Data notices the first EM band thing. He notices it immediately because he's freaking Data. He brings it up to Riker. Riker says it could be this. Data says nope. Riker says, okay, monitor it. I like that. It's a degree of competency that I always feel weird having to point it out, but I like that level of competency from my Starfleet officers. There's something strange. We know nothing else going on whatsoever, but there is something strange. Okay. Let's keep up on that. That ended up being the thing that solved the episode. Now, I noticed that no one notices what's going on with Jordy at all. I'm not sure what I think about that. The implication is that his brainwashing was so thorough and so absolute that effectively there were two Geordies walking around with a giant barrier in between them. The Geordie who's just Geordie, and remember Geordie even helps them to deduce what's going on and to figure out what's you know, the mystery of the episode, but then there's the Geordie who follows orders. I don't know, I'm not sure what I think of that, and I suppose I'm not a big expert to talk about this. I know that actual real-life brainwashing, which unfortunately is a real-life thing, um, is a very messed up thing, but I don't think it works to this perfect level of extent. This feels like basic reprogramming on an, on an absolute level, which, I don't know, I just can't buy the ability to do that. I don't know, what do you guys think? That being said, there is a brilliant scene where Jordy hesitates, kills O'Brien, murders him in cold blood, and then pushes his corpse off the chair, pulls the chair back up, sits down and has a drink. It is wonderfully disconnected from reality. It's, uh, again, a very particular type of horror, something that is horrifying being portrayed in a totally mundane and ordinary fashion. So Picard is pushing back. We see the Klingon governor. First thing I want to mention is that Picard has been getting more and more, uh, let's put it, capable of dealing with the Klingons over time. In fact, I always felt that one of the flaws of the Klingon incident across, I guess that would have been season four of DS9, is the fact that Picard was never involved in that. Because in my opinion, he should have been. Picard 
is probably one of the best Federation officers capable of dealing with the Klingons at level. And this episode showcases one of the reasons why. The governor accuses him and spits on him and blah, blah, blah. Picard leans forward and cusses him out to his face. Now, you might be like, that's not a very Federation thing to do. No, but it's an extremely Klingon thing to do. And you'll notice the governor's respect of Picard actually goes up after that. Because of course it does. I know I've talked about this so many times, but Klingon culture is built in how you respond and provoking a response from others. And Picard knows how to respond to that. And he will show this in the future, too. It's a great scene. But what I also like about the construction of this, and it is admittedly obvious in hindsight, is that the person who is kind, accepting, uh, helpful, and at every turn polite, is the bad guy. The guy who is the obstinate bureaucrat, who is usually the villain in most of these types of episodes, is the guy who's actually on our side, and the one who will inevitably be able to help assist us in figuring this stuff out. I will never forget the end of this episode where Picard says, So, we're going to search you. And he says, I will refuse to be searched on your ship. And the Klingon says, You're right, we'll bring him down and we'll search him. And he says it just in this kind of slow tone that's just, Yeah, he's, he's freaking dead. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear it in the ambassador's voice when he almost, pa he, he, swallowing panic, I request asylum. Oh, I'll give you asylum once you're exonerated of charges. Bye. <laughs> uh, so they try to figure out who the hell transported the stuff down. What I like most about that scene is that they go to extensive ex events. They go way out of their way to try and figure out who did this. They never dust for prints. Did that never occur to anyone? I'm honestly curious. They actually make a mention in dialogue of a forensics team looking over it. I would think fingerprints would be one of the first and most obvious things to check for. I have actually heard a fan theory trying to explain this away. We know that the ship cleans itself. This is something that's been established as far back as Season 2. Um, the idea, the theory basically being that maybe the ship literally cleans itself on like the massive level to the point where prints would be removed from chips. I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. I just thought I'd bring it up because it kind of bothered me. So, then we go to the point where the ambassador is enjoying a nice hearty meal. Oh, mm, oh this is good. Oh, get some wine. Oh, there you are. Yes, come into the forge. You're going to kill him. And this is the big reveal moment. Now, they play this perfectly because they don't really play it as a don 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 although they could have. Instead, they understate it, just like they have most of the episode. This is portrayed as mundane. That, that same tone of mundanity has been consistent throughout the episode. I think it's one of its strengths. And I accede a lot of that to David Livingston because he's really good at this, like I said. And so he just tells him in very simple, very normal terms, all right, you're going to go in, you're going to kill him, you're going to use a phaser, then you're going to say you were doing it on behalf of Starfleet in order to support the rebels. Okay. Back to his meal. Because this is just normal for him. I also get the very strong impression that this is the ambassador uh, Krell, I believe his name was, that the reason he is a sellout for the Romulans is basically for his own, uh, how do I phrase this? His own greed is the word I want to use here, but that's not quite the right word. In other words, that he enjoys the benefits of having Romulan patronage, that they are providing him with the kind of either wealth or power or prestige or something that he enjoys, and he enjoys being at the top of the heap. In other words, let me put it to you this way. There are two types of people that tend... Well, there are two types of negative people who tend to aspire to political power. People who want that political power to lead, to actually be the one doing, and the people who do so because they want the benefits of being the leader. 
They want the riches. They want the women or the men or the, or the bunnies or whatever. And they want the food and the, the wealth, right? That thing is what I very strongly get the impression of that archetype from the ambassador. I can't imagine what kind of position he was promised within the burgeoning Romulan regime once it took over, but I digress. So, Data finds the smoking gun. It's a nice way to find it, too. Very logical. He deduces the type of signal and the range at which the signal has to be, which is relevant for the end, and then he determines what type of transmission it is, the type of transmission that is specifically acclimated to human brain patterns. Specifically human brain patterns, it's worth noting. And it would be naturally going into an interface that is specifically designed to interface with the human mind, of which there is only one possibility on the ship. And notice how Data is thorough, which actually almost cost him in the end. If it wasn't for O'Brien, this would have gone very badly. But he decides to be thorough. He checks the shuttlecraft very thoroughly. No immediate obvious of anything wrong? Okay, what about the, the problems at the hull? Well, that's indicative of a tractor beam. Okay, what about this? Well, this is indicative of Romulan replicators. Okay, that's officially enough evidence. Data to Worf, priority one, get Geordi. It's a nice bit. <laughs> so they stop Geordi. Geordi's led away. There's this great bit where Data, I kind of already mentioned this, but Data implicates Picard or Krell. Now, we know it's not Picard because, duh. But what I love is that Picard, in character, also knows it's not Picard. So Picard, there's this bit where he says it's either you or the ambassador, and Picard just slowly turns to look at Krell, like... And you can just see it sliding into place, like, oh, that explains everything. <laughs> you know, it's just... Uh. The episode ends in an appropriately horrifying manner. The episode ends with Troy trying to deprogram Geordi. It is exactly as heart-wrenching and powerful of a scene as it should be. It's also nice to see Troy being competent. I always give credit for that because they don't do that enough. But my favorite part is how Geordi is so insistent. He has his memories. He, he pulls out a specific memory, and then Troy just kind of tosses him a quick thing. So what did you see? When the, well, when I saw the Romulan, I... And then he just stalls as his memories and his brain just starts conflicting with each other. And he mentions, I'm not sure anymore. And Troy mentions something that's very accurate. That's a good sign. Certainty, he, she's right. Certainty in this circumstance would be a bad sign. Instead, he is, of course, very uncertain, which is indicative that he is now open to the possibility that he has been reprogrammed and that he needs to work through that. Oh, that scene hurt. My, Lorma, when we first watched this episode, 91... We've moved by this point. And she's sitting there in the chair, and she's just she's just doing this during the whole scene. Just, oh my God. Oh my God. That was a that was a great scene and a horrible scene. And the only thing that makes it worse is that it's never mentioned again. <laughs> I hope you guys have enjoyed. I really liked this episode, if it's not obvious. Uh, and I will be seeing you guys next time. <laughs>